welcome to the Underground Podcast number two. Uh, you just heard a brief snippet of Camadre, fantastic, long-standing Bay Area hardcore band, uh, now unfortunately defunct. Uh, and our guest today was the guitarist and engineer of that band, uh, Jack Shirley. Jack is an amazing engineer that is behind the sound of countless records that have come out of the Bay Area punk and hardcore community since the early 2000s. Um, many of you will be familiar with his facility, the Atomic Garden, uh, through larger names such as uh, Def Heaven or Jeff Rosenstock, but he's been operating as a resource for many DIY punk bands for an insanely long time. Me and Jack first met when my band toured with Camadre in early 2012. Uh, this was a period when Screamo in Brisbane was having an entry, some would say a re-entry, depending on what age you were at the time. By the way, that title is now incorrectly referred to as the then-comically eponymic Scrams for some reason. Uh, when I use the term Screamo bands, it's obviously just a signpost. Um, many of the bands that mingled together in book shows, printed merch, drew flyers and all of that for each other uh, all sounded quite different, um, but they all had a common thread from the same cloth. So this point in Brisbane was pretty remarkable. Uh, you could book a show with a bunch of weirdo punk bands with a headliner like Camadre. Uh, who had no audience here and 150 people would show up and go crazy so there was a certain vibrancy that convoyed the plethora of community run spaces and all ages venues on the main existing within warehousing and industrial areas. So there was a lot going on and it seems a fool's errand to marry it all into one happy family but there was a distinct community within the underground in Brisbane and there was a bunch of money going back to bands because all the shows that were being booked were at spaces that weren't taking profits and neither were bookers and I feel this generated longevity. It's also worth noting that most people I knew that booked tours and shows were around my age, uh, just 20 at the time. I feel that at that age you're still a teenager really so not only is there that energy level but there's also not much of a desire to get ahead financially um, and this resulted in so many people doing so much work for local and overseas punk bands and not seeing a dime out of it, um, just purely for their benefit. Um, not to say this doesn't happen presently, but it was much more commonplace back then. This groundswell was occurring in Brisbane at the time, coincided with a bunch of fantastic hardcore bands coming over from the US, either from the Bay Area or within close proximity. There was at least two punch tours, uh, Loma Prieta, Ludax, Dangers, Graf Orlock, bands like that. Um, Madre falls into that category. Uh, there's also a bunch of Italian screamer bands that made it here, and I can't remember who was spearheading that. Um, so my band was pretty fresh, as we'd only done two or three large tours before, and we were pretty stoked to be joining um, Camadre and our mates in Quiet Steps for, I think it was Melbourne, Sydney, and Canberra shows. The one thing I remember about that tour is that wherever we were, uh, whether it was in a, the back room of a venue or the van or in the kitchen of someone's house. Uh, Jack and I were always talking about audio. We'd be showing each other gear or talking about techniques. Uh, mostly he was helping me find my sea legs as I was pretty fresh and only then working at my first studio. I'd like to think I wasn't punishing him, but in all honesty, that was probably happening. Uh, but he was so lovely to me and didn't hesitate once in helping me learn as much as I could about everything in the studio. I was and still am a huge fan of all of his work, so it was a bit of a dream for me to have that experience. Alright, so that was a bit too much talking, let's start this thing. Uh, before we begin, we would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which this is being recorded, 
recognise their continuing connection to land, water and community. We pay respect to elders past, present and emerging. Here we go. Cool, man. Thanks so much for doing this. Really appreciate you taking the time. I'm happy to be involved. I wanted to start by saying how much I love the sound of the records you've made. Um, I can think back to many uh, nights listening to Loma Prieta and Punch and just being in love with the sound of them. Obviously, your skills go far beyond recording hardcore bands, but the way you've tracked so many Bay Area punk records has been really original, you know, super raw sounding and, and lifelike in, in contrast to the norm. First of all, thank you very much. That was all very, very nice of you to say. It's, it's very cool to, like, to connect so far across the world, you know? Did you, how, how did you kind of find your feet uh, recording? Like, was it just you were the guy that had an interest in, in that and so you kind of forced into that role? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's kind of exactly what it was, really. I mean, like, uh, in, the, in the scene that I was in at the time, there wasn't really much in terms of, uh, in terms of, uh, I'm going to move this microphone down really quick here. Yeah, at the time, um, our local scene didn't really have, like, a DIY recorder that was a go-to, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and there were a lot of people that were kind of all, all doing it, uh, all playing music together and, like, part, part of this whole, this whole thing. And, like, uh, I don't know, it was kind of right place, right time. It was um, a bunch of us that, like, wanted zero interference in terms of, like, <laughs> dealing with somebody making a record for you, you know? And, like, I think enough enough young people who had had um, less than stellar experiences with with their first run-ins with uh, recording engineers, you know? Um, but, yeah, um, I was playing in, like, a screamo band uh, around then, and um, we were working on a record, and... You know, just I had a friend of mine was recording it in Pro Tools, and then like the drummer of the band actually had a Pro Tools system at his house, and so like we were finishing it up and mixing it, and um, I wasn't really happy with how it was going, and I was like, hey man, I just got a little setup. I had like an Mbox and a Dell computer, and it was like, hey, I'll let me give this a whirl. You know, like I can take the session and see what what we can do, and um, it was one of those things where like I knew what I wanted the sound to be, uh, I just didn't know what went into it, you know, so it just became kind of a trial and error, and I mixed that record by myself, um, with some pointers from my buddy who was a Pro Tools guy, and then, like, that was it, man, that was, that was, that was it, I mean, <laughs> from there, it was just like, okay, I gotta get enough stuff to be able to record a band, because this is, like, this is the way, this is my thing, you know? Yeah, it's, it's very easy to become fit, and yeah. it's hard to come Yeah, absolutely, it was, it was quick, you know, and then, like, like I said, though, because, but right place, right time, enough people were a part of our local scene um, and there wasn't really another option as cheap and accessible or whatever. So, like, it was, I think it was a no-brainer. A lot of people just came. And so within about a year and a half of me, like, literally getting an Mbox and, like, Pro Tools and, and a most the most stripped-down thing you could imagine, uh, about a year and a half later, I was paying rent at my parents' house, uh, you know, like, with recording money. And I was able to quit my job and... Um, it's grown significantly every year since then. It's an amazing feeling being able to do that, being able to support yourself just from, from doing what you love. Um, is the community there as healthy as it was when you were starting out? It's different now. You know, like, the, where I was before was, like, um, for anybody that's, uh, that knows the Bay Area even a little bit, um, the, the stretch between San Francisco and San Jose in the, in the San Francisco Bay Area is about 50 miles long. Yeah. And, um, 
the city that I was that I was in was San Carlos. Was right like there's a bunch of little clustered cities together. It's, but it's like halfway between San Francisco and San Jose, basically, um, which is also like equal distant from Oakland and um, almost in kind of Berkeley and like Santa Cruz and stuff. So there's this big circle of all this, you know, all these big cities with a lot of people in them. So I mean, yeah, there's still a ton of local music, especially if you think about how big the Bay Area is and how many of cities kind of play into all that. So um, the peninsula, though, where I started, like the Redwood City area, Palo Alto area, um, it has no music left. Like there's no young kids making music there for whatever reason. There, When I started like back then in through maybe, I don't know, 2008 or 10, um, there was a ton of stuff going on, tons of kids, uh, a lot of bands, and like it was really like rich. Um, in the last you know, I, I don't know what happened to them all. <laughs> you know, I, think that is, I mean, a lot of people that I'm friends with kind of have these debates as well. Like, is it a lack of all ages venues or is it like technology kind of uh, influencing culture? Uh, you know, it could be a, it could be the next generation wasn't into guitar music. You know what I mean? Like, or the next, like there wasn't a wave to like pick up, you know, uh, Comadre and, and, uh, and friendly bands, you know, the, the bands that were all part of that scene, you know, we had, a, we definitely like nurtured a DIY scene and like put on a lot of shows and like a lot. And, and once we started touring, then other bands came through and toured through. And like, you know, there were, there were fairly significant bands that were skipping over San Francisco to play, you know, in a suburb 30 miles South. Um, because there was such a like, you know what I mean? There was a thriving thing going on. Um, so it could be that, you know, four years later, like the next batch of kids went through high school and they were like more into electronic music or something. You know what I mean? Like, I, I don't know. I mean, there's still plenty of like punk and hardcore and whatever going on in the Bay Area, but just not in that specific area. So it just kind of dried up. I, everybody moved to Oakland or whatever in San Francisco. When you were getting into it, were you, did you have a partner or any assistance when you were stepping up with your equipment and graduating to consoles and tape machines and having to maintain and service them or was it all just forums and figuring stuff out on yourself my um my my good good friend was working at our local music shop in the pro audio department and um and he was selling pro tool systems and he knew his way around pro tools very like proficiently you know and um and so he be, kind of became my um I was, you know, silent partner in, in a way because he ended up getting a job working for DigiDesign as a rep and then like moved up as a, um, you know, product manager and whatnot. Um, and now he's actually at Universal Audio. But um, through the years of the studio, he's always kind of been there to help facilitate, you know, like help with, you know, with advice on gear or, or whatever. Like or he, he kind of helped teach me Pro Tools, um, yep. helped build the old studio, you know what I mean? Like all of that. Um, but in terms of like an actual like partner in the studio, now there's it's always just been me and magazines and forums and. Um, I can imagine in the early 2000s, the um, there was less of a, a tribe of information on the internet as there is now. Oh man, now with like yeah, like mixed with the masters and like all these other um, things that have popped up. I mean, like it's crazy how much accessible information there is. Yeah, back then it was like you know, Mix Magazine or EQ Magazine and like Gear Sluts and. Um, and just trying to talk to anybody that was into it. You know, we, were, we had a few friends that were all kind of getting into it at the same time. Um, but yeah, it, but the really, honestly, the most educational thing in all of it was just trial and error and like listening and, you know, paying attention and experimenting and things like that, um, which is really not the way to make good records, uh, like <laughs> looking back on it. Uh, I mean, like I, I, uh, I ruined a hand, a good many records uh, experimenting or like trying 
more than my ability should have allowed. You know what I mean? I think um, people have just gone the route that that you have. Uh, yeah. Not to avoid that. Yeah, but you know, a good ten years in, you come out on the other side and you start really, you start really like having a grasp on all of it. Um, but yeah, you know, of course, it, it make you know, you you're, the logic says, oh, if I put two microphones on this guitar amp, it'll sound twice as good. Yeah. Um, but then you learn way later that oh, I didn't understand how phase relationships worked then, you know, and so um, that sounded really bad actually. Um, but like early on. Well, yeah, but it, but it's funny because early on, like I didn't even, I didn't have enough inputs or enough microphones or enough know-how to put two microphones on a guitar cabinet. So you just put a fifty-seven generally where you think it should go, and it actually sounds. I, that's what I still do today, actually. Um, and so, and it's a foolproof method, you know. Yeah. Um, Sometimes when I look back on the earlier recordings I did when I wasn't very knowledgeable, some of the like the recordings are kind of dodgy, but some of them are really cool because there's there's not a whole slew of microphones up. It's quite minimal, and there's something. Cool yes. About it you don't know enough to mess it up. Like, exactly. and so some of the, my earliest recordings still hold up pretty well because it's so simple and it's so straight to the point. You know, there's, there's not enough to like, but the, but the man, the ones in between are embarrassing. Yeah. I know what you mean. You're trying to, um, <laughs> trying to push your technical prowess, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Without any actual uh, education. Sometimes when freelance engineers come here, they have the most complicated, uh, set up physically in the room and in approach mm. and doing things. Mm -hmm. and I just feel like saying like, just do less, yes. uh, have a grasp and everything, just do less, it'll sound better. I, I mean, I get stuff to mix all the time that I didn't record and um, it more often than not, it's kind of a mess, you know? Like it's, uh, or, or it's just the kind of, I mean, this is, this is something that gets repeated in every interview or whatever, but like the, the more, the, the modern tendency is to just like do everything and then like make decisions later about it, you know? So like, so I've gotten I've gotten sessions where there's literally 20 microphones on a drum set, um, which is something I would never ever imagine doing in my own life. Yeah. Um, uh, but and sometimes it's like, sometimes people deliver that and say, "Well, we wanted to just give you a lot of options," you know. And so it's like, okay, fine, you know, I'll go pick up, I'll pick out the 10 microphones that I like out of these 20 or whatever. But um, I find that, or there's four microphones on a guitar cabinet or whatever. Uh, none of them are in phase. Like, you know what I mean? Like, they can't really, they don't work well together. Um, and, and, and honestly, you start soloing mics in all these situations, and none of them sound as good as they would have if you just spent the time getting, exactly. getting like, the handful correct, you know? So, um, which is how I prefer to work, but... I mean, it would be terrible to be in a band standing in a control room and, and have an engineer say to you, oh, like, it will sound like something, like, when it gets... <laughs> well, that's a, yeah, that's a good point, actually. So, like, I think about that. I get something to record that would be, it's so phasey and weird sounding, like when I just pull it up and it, all it takes is some, you know, surgical correction here and there, time delaying or, or phase, you know, polarity flipping or whatever it might be. And it sounds, it can sound incredible. What I wonder though, while I'm working on that part of it is like, how, what did they think about this? You know, like oh, yeah. when they put these four mics up and it sounded like, like soup, uh, or, you know, like just like dark and, and, uh, murky and, whatever like how were they like oh awesome you know like nobody realized like you know a couple of uh a couple of samples moved over and all of a sudden it sounds like a blanket came off the whole thing you know um are you say are you i assume you're mostly live tracking then yeah um i actually haven't done a one at a time recording in like several years I, I, unless unless it's unless it's literally the only option like it's one person you know that has to do everything yes. um 
or something like that, I'll, I'll, you know, obviously, what else are you going to do? But, um, but yeah, if a full band is in the studio, the band is recording live almost always. It, do you find it incredibly painful to multi-track at this point? Yes. Yeah. It's not, like, I, I've actually turned down work because it's kind of just like, hey, you know, I'm probably not your guy because, like, this is really not how, or, or it, it's a common, it's a common conversation where someone will call up and say, hey, I really like the records that you do. We want to record with you. And we start talking, and they say, well, this is what we want to do. And it's like, yeah, we want to do one thing at a time. We want to do it to a click track. We want to do it, you know, we want to be able to edit and do all this stuff. And I have to, like, slow it down and say, well, I should tell you that none of the records that you just said that you liked were made that way. Yeah. And the reason they, the reason you like them is probably because they weren't made that way. Um, exactly. And so but when it comes to doing something that laborious and, like, under such a microscope, like, it, it's... The, the process is not fun for me and it's not fun for the musicians. And if they're really set on doing it that way, I, I, I usually just kind of, you know, gracefully bow out of the situation. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the few times I've done it in the past few years, I've said, like, oh, well, let's just record live first and then maybe we can, like, multi-track certain elements of it and whatnot because I just feel like we kind of have a blindfold on if we're just, like, doing little increments of the record until we get to the end and I'm like, okay, this is what right. we want. I've also, like... You know, the the seller for a lot of people is, okay, well, hey, we'll isolate the drums. You guys do this live. The drummer will play better. If you absolutely hate everything else, we can just throw it away and start over. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and they never throw away everything else, you know. But, um, but what I've really enjoyed the last few years is um, the bands that have been into it, just putting everybody in the same room with no headphones and amps and the whole thing uh, and just having them play. And I've gotten the best results in terms of, like, um, performance and whatnot. You know, you sacrifice a bit of fidelity, I guess. But, like, but even that ends up kind of Being sounding cool. Sound, yeah. yeah, of course. So, um, but that's been the majority. It's been maybe, I don't know, maybe over half of the tracking that I've done in the last while has been that way. Yeah, right. Um, I guess it's easier at your new facility. Um, with the first facility you had, what was, this, what was the thing that made you step up from your parents' house, you know, to, to start in the first video? Oh, well, I, I finished school, and that was, it was like, okay, we got to get out of here kind of thing, you know? Um, yeah. And, and, and I was in a, it, like, the, I was in, like, an in-law unit in my parents' house. I don't know if they, if that's the terminology you guys use, but, like... Granny flat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that sounds cooler. Uh, I was in the granny flat, though. So, like, and it was... Um, but it was set up kind of cool where there, there was like a like kind of a living room and then kind of a tiny little cove for like a walk-in closet or something and another little cove for like what was a bed you know bed area but it was all basically one room um it, but it but it turned out to be a really good like makeshift live room control room and isolation booth um with some you know baffling and stuff and 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 a fair amount of records i mean you know the first like three commodore records were recorded there really um yeah, the because uh, I didn't move until two thousand and six, so I was almost two and a half years at my parents' house. But that was cool. It was really dead. There wasn't really, you know, I put up a bunch of Oralex like uh, foam and stuff, yeah. and it was carpeted, so like it was bone dry in that in that space. Um, was that cold? You tell me, got at that yeah. point? Uh, no, it was called the shit box. Um, so. Yes, uh, but then when I moved and I started like paying taxes and stuff, I was like, you know, I should probably like um, have a little bit more of a respectable name, I guess. Uh, and so, so yeah, 2006 was when it started being called the Atomic Garden, and then um, 
Yeah, and then that was like that was twelve and a half years at the at that that spot that we built. Um, was it stressful moving into a commercial facility? No, it was great. I mean, it was like it was awesome. So it was very DIY built. It was not very big. Um, it was like four rooms totaling in like eight hundred square feet, which uh, I don't really know how that translates for you, for whoever else is listening to this, but not that big, I guess. Um, not tiny though, you know, like definitely doable. I was there for. 12 years and in like all, almost every record in that time was made there but yeah decent live room like 15 by 20 as well for the for the control room which is like five by six meters it was not terribly well built it was built by a bunch of punk kids who didn't know a whole lot about construction um it was not very well soundproofed which was i think part of the reason why it sounded pretty good actually because yeah. all the all the pressure could escape the room the, the live room actually always got comments on how good it sounded i i and it, it, initially it was very dry um but then i went someplace to record you know that wasn't my own place and we, we had to use this big concrete room and i fell in love with how cool the drum sounded and like came home and ripped all the treatment down and like put up a bunch of hard surfaces and yeah. um and it was a small room so it was really more of a controlled like heavy bright slap brack kind of thing like not it wasn't obviously it wasn't like reverb or anything but like yeah. um but the room sound that's on a lot of those, a lot of the records that were made there, like it's a pretty distinct sound. I see. Yeah, I'm pretty good at uh, extremely cheap construction. I mean, again, though, we didn't really like, we didn't do a whole lot. I mean, especially especially now after going through the process of building like a professional recording studio, like a like a full blast like pro facility, um, we did so little. <laughs> in the in the old spot like it was single layer drywall that was too thin to begin with um no like n no floating of any of the um Every, no, nothing was decoupled it was all just kind of no no the, the whole place was built on a floor that was decoupled from the floor of the warehouse which was probably also a mistake to, to some degree because it like it, depending on who you ask um the control room was symmetrical uh, and it was kind of trapezoidal shaped, uh, and and that helped, I think. But like, there was also a giant pane of glass only on one side of the room, which is a terrible design choice. Um, you know, th I've learned a lot in the last couple of years watching these designers and these uh, in my um, contractor and stuff work. It's been very educational. So, who designed the new studio? I mean, for anyone listening, you've actually just now uh, moved facility. Um, yes. I've seen minimal photos, I think, on your Instagram. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, how's it all working out? It's insane. Uh, it's like a whole new world. You know, I, I've worked at other studios than mine uh, whenever bands have like bigger budgets or like, you know, things like that. Um, and it's always a, a good experience usually. Uh, and it's an educational experience just working in different spaces. Um, but I've never really been, I've never felt at home in a different studio other than my own. And, um, and then having this thing built to basically my exact specifications and, and then learning a bunch from the, from the designer um i've got it was wesley show wasn't it yeah wesley show and actually they just i just saw today they just added the studio to their website so anybody right. that's listening can go look at it now so it's west it's like wesley show design group is if you could just google yeah. that you'll find it and it's under it's like the third studio down on the studio pages i'll check a link up for anyone who's interested um but yeah how was the move and why was the decision made to move at that time uh, I mean, the move was okay. Uh, getting everything here and getting set up was not a big deal because the place was like pre-wired and like it, it was really just like bring the gear in and plug it all in, you know. So that was fine. Uh, but I did have to demolish the old studio before I left, which really, 
really sucked. I had the same situation except that the last part. I mean, they, they allowed me to keep it as a studio, but yeah, at the same time, it was not built. Yeah, moving moving totally sucks, but it was well well worth it though. I mean, the the, the new spot is it's huge, and it's also I mean for me, um, and uh, you know, there's multiple studios. Uh, the control or the um, the live room at the new spot is bigger than the old whole old studio, so like you could literally fit the old studio inside of this new live room with a few with a few feet to spare on every side. I read somewhere that you got the new API uh, on the. Screen. I thought about it, uh, but I decided against it, especially after working at a couple, a couple other places that had some very different. I, I do love API more than most other things I've sat in front of, but I had the 1608, the 32 channel at the old spot. I actually didn't get very much new gear uh, on the move. Uh, just the monitoring system, really, is the only new thing. There was a lot of talk, actually, of, like, what would it be if to upgrade this console for this new spot? Um, and after a lot of thinking and talking and whatnot, and actually, Wes Lachaud is an API dealer, and so he would have been just the guy to, to help me. Yeah. I don't know. I, I really like my console, and, I, and I, I, I like API quite a bit, but after working on... Um, I worked on a Vision for a couple weeks, it's cra- I mean, it's a crazy. It, it's basically like an API SSL. You know what I mean? Like it's yeah. it's it's about as decked out as you can get. But I really didn't like it. It was too complicated. You know, like like the. Um, yeah, like I, I've really disliked working on some of the new SSL stuff, like the duality. It's it's too complex. Yeah, I mean, even something as simple as like the bus routing. Like instead of having a button to say send this signal to here, it had like a central computer that you had to go and like use a mouse and assign the output of a channel to that bus, you know, and like, uh, you'd get used to using it eventually. But to me, the thing that kind of made me sweat about the idea of it was like the tech nightmare that it must be to service these things. You know, if you've got like this independent computer, you got like all these crazy, the modules are humongous, you know what I mean? And like they use like, there's relays that are built into the patch bay and stuff like that. Like, I don't know, it all made my head hurt. Like, I don't know a lot and I can pull something out and troubleshoot it and like replace an op amp and put it back and, you know, so it's been pretty, um, it's been good. But yeah, I'm feeling I'm feeling good. The the uh, the other studio here actually has a 48 channel SSL 4000. Do you go and mix on the 4K sometimes? Well, actually, so the way it's set up is the the two control rooms are run like two private rooms basically. So like I have my room, it's got all the stuff in it, and then like I'm leasing the other half of the studio long term to another couple of people, and so they have their room and I have my room, and we don't really cross over. On paper, they're a separate business, uh, but we function under the same name, and you know, because it's the one studio. But yeah, no, there we, you know, we hand work back and forth occasionally if like somebody needs to pick up for somebody else or whatever, you know, or take over something. We don't really share equipment. We share a mic locker and we share like backline gear, but like we don't have any floating like studio gear or anything like that. That sounds pretty harmonious. It seems like you've worked that out pretty well. It's cool. We ha- yeah, we have like uh, in the studio, the, the new spot is very soundproofed. Like, uh, you know, it's not perfect or anything because you're right on the other side of the wall from the live room. But like, I've I've mixed a record while there's another band tracking in the live room, and like been totally fine. You know, it's we're able to kind of dance around each other. We also did they so the two guys that are in the other studio. One guy was working at a, a much bigger place in Berkeley here, and another guy is kind of a friend of the, the two of us, and he was kind of a kind of silent partnering on this whole thing. They had to outfit a control room from zero. Like, between the two of them, they didn't own any equipment. They went nuts. They did really good, though. They, they, they've, they've put together a pretty crazy situation. So we also acquired, like, three... I had a plate reverb already at the old spot, um, 
and we've gotten three more now. So there's a hallway outside the studios where there's four, there's three EMTs and an echo plate all in a row. It's crazy. And there's a little patch bay out there. So you can kind of like set, you know, send whichever one to whichever control room you want. We both got like AKG BX20s and we're running the same tape machines. We're running, you know what I mean? Like it's, they're actually pretty similarly outfitted, the two studios. Yeah, you guys are pretty lucky in the States in terms of all the plates and old reverbs and stuff. Like I'm, I'm not sure there'd be any BX20s in the, in the country in Australia. That's a good point. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. And, and, and studios have been kind of like in the two years that it took to, to build this whole thing, I think like six studios in California closed. Like, and some of them were pretty big. And so a lot of gear goes up and, you know, plates aren't really worth a whole lot anymore because software, they weigh 400 pounds. Uh, they're not fun to, I've moved three, four of them now and, um, getting good at it, but I'm probably never going to do it again. Yeah. It's a whole, yeah, it's a whole ordeal. So the kind of, what are the kind of bands coming through the facility at the moment? A lot of engineers in the punk or DIY realm that you came from, you know, mm -hmm. lower budget, easy access recording, um, excluding exceptions. Is this, is this still the case? Yeah, oh, definitely. Uh, I, I mean, I like uh, the pricing didn't go up from the old spot to here, um, even though it's moved into this like insane, like world class facility. Part of the model is keeping the overhead manageable. And like we all want accessibility to be a thing. Also, I live in the building. And so it's part of keeping the overhead low, does, you know? How does that go? I mean, I've always found it quite uncomfortable uh, being in the same facility that I'm working at. Like, constantly, mm. you know, work and home life. Yeah, I'm like, I'm like 15 years into living at the studio uh, at this point. Uh, so I'm just used to it. But, uh, it, so, but to answer your question, at the old spot, at the, at, the, at the DIY, like, warehouse space with a studio in it, um, it was it got a little rough uh, you know after a while like it was cool in the beginning like the punk house vibe of like everybody's here and we're all just like you know whatever it's 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 cool um but sometimes when you just want some peace and quiet or whatever or you want to make dinner or whatever and not have people walking through your kitchen or your living space uh also because it wasn't soundproofed if there was a band recording in the live room like you were you might as well have just been in there with them you know what i mean like if you're out and like yeah, what, what used to be our living room, I mean, like, it wasn't pleasant if you were trying to do something else. But in the new spot, everything's uh, got to be kind of more above board because of how extensive the build-out was and stuff. And so um, there's a proper apartment that's, like, straight up 100% soundproof. Like, you, almost, you, you can't hear anything that's happening in the studio anymore. And so my girlfriend and I are constantly kind of, like checking in with each other on a daily basis saying like can you believe that this is our life now you know like she she put up with a lot being at the she was at the old spot for for about seven years with me and so she's a saint <laughs> I have a situation. um at the previous place that you were at uh was it quite difficult financially or it was very easy i mean the rent was low and when you live at the same place that you're working, um it really relieves a lot of pressure. In fact, that's, that's the reason I was able, I've been able to like buy gear over the, all the years is like, you know, I work like crazy and I, and you're able to save a lot of money. But when I first moved into this space, I think I was paying like $800 a month and, and that's for living and working. And I wasn't really doing much else other than working. So it's like, you know, financially, that was a big, big thing. When I moved out of my parents' house was, uh, let me think about this. I was paying 500 bucks a month at my parents' house. And then, yeah, it jumped up to eight or 850 or whatever it was at the new spot. And so I was able to kind of say like, all right, even if this fails and I have to work, you know, just some random odd job, I can still pay the rent and I can still live in this place and I can still have a recording studio that I can do whatever I want with. You know what I mean? Yeah. 
Um, and that's, that's been like, it's been built in very small increments every step of the way, just to, just with that kind of thing in mind, like, okay, even if I had to work another job, it would still cover it. I mean, we're not quite there anymore, but like that, that got me through a, a 10 years, uh, you know, I never did have to do anything else, but, but in case I did, it was, it was, there was always like that cushion of like the overheads real low. Yeah, I think the first studio I was in, it was 2,600 a month plus like 800 in bills. Um, yeah, so listening to hearing you say that is pretty insane. It's quite but that was, I mean, that was the way. So between between that low rent and then having like friends that worked in the audio industry, where like it's it's fairly common that like the friends and family discount is like fifty percent off of stuff. And then along the way, I've always just kind of like traded up in terms of like selling something to pay for something bigger by only investing a little bit more money. That's been like a common building block, you know. How are you with, with uh, gear? Do you constantly sort of research and buy equipment, or do you kind of stay where I, you're at? I, where I'm at now, I have to stay where I'm at for a long time because I, the, the, this, this build-out is, like, insanely expensive. So, like, I don't, really, I don't really have anything to throw at gear for a long time probably. So, but thankfully, I, I, I got to a place kind of right before the move and the build that, where I was really just stoked about everything. So, no, I'm feeling really good about it there's like there's not a ton of stuff but it's all pretty like high quality and like uh staple iconic type stuff you know what i mean and there's a couple pieces where like if the shit hit the fan i could make a lot of money in a weekend by selling it all and like and it wouldn't be the end of the world you know so um it's a dangerous game man (laughs) it's very very tempting to kind of uh you know feel like oh well maybe if i had this like you know this element of this last recording i did could be improved but Recording equipment is insanely expensive. It is. And like and like you were saying before, getting your source material right, uh nothing else really matters past that, honestly. Like <laughs> like the, the the source and the mic and the mic placement is probably eighty five percent of the success of like any recording, you know? So like obviously that plays into the room in in like in the microphones at your disposal and stuff, but like I've I've come to find all of us spend time trying to figure out all the like secrets about this process, you know, yeah. and like kind of theoretically build up like, oh, well, what is the important thing? What does this matter? Does that matter? The thing makes most sense to me is that each step gets less important than the step before it, basically, all the way to the end. So like, you know, the mic and the placement is less important than what the actual thing sounds like in the room. But yeah, and, and then like, you know, and then the the equalizer or the compressor that you use on that source or whatever is less important than the thing you know than than that all that and then and, and on and on and on because uh, if you get it really really good on capture like you don't really need to do a lot past that so you feel like recording is the kind of ability that no one can never really get good enough at yes a hundred percent like I I. Uh, I improve on it constantly. There's always room for improvement. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, like a moving here was a huge deal because the control room is like, it sounds better than any control room I've ever been in, basically. And so, and now that I can hear accurately what I'm doing, <laughs> it's changed a lot. And if I had to start over, knowing all the things that I know now, I would do things very different. But um, or prioritize different things, I guess. You know, it can be it can be easy to like fetishize over certain gear or whatever and spend a bunch of money on stuff but like yeah none of that stuff makes any difference I mean, you know I, I wish I had gotten a tape machine sooner I wish I'd uh you know had a, a more accurate control room sooner things like that you know but 
whatever. Here we are, how are you, at the end. How are you utilizing <laughs> the multi-track there? Like, are you archiving records you do? Oh, um, most of the time, the multi-track ends up in Pro Tools. Um, you, but are you almost into Pro Tools afterwards, or are you recording through and reprogramming out through Pro Tools? I tr I usually try to when I'm tracking. I try to not even turn the computer on or get into the computer until we absolutely have to. So, in, and for a lot of records, that means the whole thing gets tracked to two inch. And then for some beyond that, uh, some never get transferred to the computer. We just mix it analog and and we're done. But yeah, but the majority of them are tracked to two inch, maybe to completion. And then transferred uh, to Pro Tools, and then mixed hybrid, basically like uh, you know summing through the console and using an outboard chain and a bunch of outboard effects. Are you, are you finding that like most vocalists prefer to sing into a computer? Uh, no, they um, it's it's only for certain cases where we if we need to move really fast and edit and like do a lot of like comping or something like that. It's only that. It's it, but if it's somebody that's gonna do a whole take of a song all the way through. Uh, and then maybe just touch it up. Like it, they they don't even know the difference. Yeah. What what type are you using? Um, I'm on. I've actually my two inch has always been RMG or it's now it's called Recording the Masters, um, nine eleven the four fifty six essentially. Yeah, I was using the nine hundred for a bit, but I feel like it was a bit too hot. Um, I was even when I was from storing the tape, I was getting some print through and like had to mm. had to crank the erase head so hard. Um, oh no kidding my machine just to get it uh, working properly but yeah I've been really happy with this stuff it like I, I like how uh, squishy it is like when you hit when you do hit it it like it has a very nice breakup to it the the 900 I didn't like it felt a little too like rigid to me or something or like when it, when it did break up it didn't sound the way I wanted you know yeah uh, one, out of, one out of every like four or five reels I had were shedding hard as well um, I think they've, oh weird I think they've corrected that now though, according to the website yeah I've had that. I had that with the two, tr with like the quarter inch tape. Um, yeah. I had I had a, a good deal of that, but I, the two inch has always been in pretty good shape for me. Yeah, you, you have an yeah. uh, Atari, don't you? Yeah, uh, MTR ninety two. What what equalization and speed are you running? Um, it's always at fifteen, just just uh, for conservation, yeah. and uh, just NAB equalization. It, it's it's very very standard. It's like plus six, just normal. You know what I mean? Like the my tech. When he, when we he was kind of first teaching me the ins and outs of it was like yeah you know you want to you might want to set up your channel one to be optimized you know biased for the kick drum or whatever and like and like you know, EQ'd this way or whatever but it's like I don't know I don't work that specifically every single time you know yeah I don't specifically um, bias channels for specific instruments no I've found over the years that I like everything to be as similar as possible in terms of like channels you know well when I first started. Or, you know, when you start getting into outboard, it's really common. I mean, you, you see tons of people do it where you have, like, a couple channels of this and a couple channels of that and all this, you know, this big mishmash of, of stuff. It's cool, I guess, but for me, it gets, I get caught up in, like, oh, well, the, like, no, the bass drum, I guess, sounds better through this mic pre and EQ, and then, like, the, the, this sounds maybe better through this or whatever. Um, but it, none of it sounds bad, and it doesn't need that kind of um, deliberation most of the time. So... I've even on the console now, you know, the the 1608 has the 500 series uh, EQ slot or whatever. And so you can put anything you want in there. And for a while, I had a handful of different EQs. They were mostly API EQs still, but like I would have, you know, the 550A or the B or the 560s. And like they were kind of like kind of arranged in a, you know, a logical way on the board. But I found that I didn't like certain things to land on. I was like, oh, like I don't want this on that channel with that eq's and then i have a huge fuck around to plug in 20 different pieces of outboard for like a 
a whole band. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Like, sitting around. If I'm like freelancing another studio and they have an assistant, like I guess I'll ask them to like a bunch of shit in, but I sort of can't be bothered at the same time. No, no, absolutely. So like at this point, I have the board set up like a like a vintage API where every single channel is the same you know like it's it's the same eqs all the way across and i have a bunch of 560s but they're in the center section they can be patched around if they're needed but yeah no i i i don't i i have not gotten gotten into like where every little channel's catered to something different uh i don't even want to think about it i just want to reach up and know that i'm getting the same eq that i had on every other channel you know yeah because i see times of the essence too with the sort of band that you're oh my goodness Absolutely. Like, there's no time to fuck around. Like, with, and it's mostly just budgetary restriction, restrictions. Like, the people that want to, to experiment and play around, like, it's great and we can spend time and we can do that. But, like, most of the time, I'm just going with what I know will work and, like, making it work and doing a, a pretty, like, straightforward capture of what they're doing, you know, to try to make a good representation of what's happening. And, like, when, when people want to get, get more artsy, like, it's awesome, but it does require you know, a good deal more time. Sometimes I feel like the results may not be, they might be incrementally better percentage-wise, but... No. Right. I don't have, like, I have an uh, Amec Einstein console here, which have electronically coupled preamps. So, like, mm-hmm. um, you know, sometimes I'll, I'll plug an outboard for a bass drum and bass, you know, something with transformers in it. Um, but other than, sure. yeah, I don't want to spend too much time. Yeah, it's fine. That's cool, man. Are you, are you running mostly tape? Yes, but same as you, like, uh, hybridization with the computer. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, as much as I don't like having to use it, it does make a lot of things possible, you know? It, you know, if bands had to buy their reels every time they came, like, people wouldn't want to record the tape. Like, like I, I made it, when I started using tape, I liked it so much, I was like, okay, I just don't want to offer an option to not use it, basically, you know what I mean? So now, I don't even, tr- I used to charge per reel, you know, like 50 bucks or whatever to use a reel, Um per use now i just build it into the hourly you know or the day rate or whatever like so nobody pays for tape like incrementally anymore it's just like Do you record any because that buy tape that you know archive that tape oh yeah 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 they um uh, occasionally it's not often especially since i can do a backup for them for like a hundred dollars or something you know based on the whatever time it takes to dump a couple of reels in so yeah, no, not a lot of people do it. And they also like, most people don't have the means to store tape responsibly, you know? Yeah, yeah. I saw recently, you know. I saw recently you were at uh, 25th Street. Um, how's that? Um, it was mixed. Like, it's where we had done the previous Def Heaven record. We did New Bermuda, or we did the live tracking of New Bermuda at that studio. And I think we were only there for like three days. But this time we did their most recent record there. And we were there for like 11 days or something like that. And it was it was fine. It was cool. You know, the, I, I I'm happy with how the record turned out. But uh, but again, it's like you get into these complicated rooms with like these really complicated consoles and stuff like that, and you find out when you get there that like the way you want to use it is not the way anybody else uses it. So like the the room might not be set up to your specifications. You know what I mean? Um, just stuff like that. I don't know. Like without getting too deep into it. I mean, it was fine. It got done. Uh, everybody was happy. But, like, I th- the only reason we went someplace else was because the the new spot wasn't done yet. And so, like, I, I remember talking to uh, George, the, uh, the singer from Deaf Heaven, and he, sa- he kind of just said, like, man, I'm glad we don't have to ever have this conversation again, you know? Yeah. Like, of where, of where are we going to record this record? Because even this time we went and we, we walked through a couple other places and we talked about some other options and stuff like that. But um, 25th Street is very well outfitted and, like, it's in a great location. Um, it's really comfortable. 
the staff is very nice. You know what I mean? Like it's a it's a good it's a good studio for sure. Yes, uh, or eight twenty seven, I believe. So yeah, they have a. I mean, they got a crazy. They, they have that vision console. They have a sixty four channel vision console, um, which is nuts. Yeah, I mean, it's like a. I, from from what I gather, it's like a, it's like a half a million dollar console or something like that, and a ton of outboard gear, like all kinds of crazy shit. You know, like everything you'd want. Um, what was it like working with Jeff Rosenstock then? Oh my god, Jeff is like the coolest dude in the fucking world, and I love him so much. I don't. Know, I've worked on like eight records with Jeff, and so because he he's a producer as well. I'm actually going in about a month. I'm going to New York because Jeff's recording a live record, and he's flying me out to engineer it. He's doing like four nights in a row at this ballroom oh, in New York. Yeah, I'm fucking stoked. Uh, but man, Jeff Rosenstock is like I don't know. I can't say enough nice things about the guy. But we've done. We've done three of his records together, and we've done a few other of other other people's records together as well, where he's producing and I'm engineering. Yep. Um, we actually did the Smith Street record together. Uh, no, the, the, right. That's yeah. it's all it's all coming back. Uh, but yeah, we spent three and a half weeks tracking that record up in this studio in like the in like the hills on like a on a sea cliff, and that was an amazing. Uh, ex- was that a studio or like a house that was? It's it's. It's a house that you've seen probably because it's owned by the publisher of Tape Op and it's called Panoramic House and I bet you've seen the ads yeah, yeah. in the back. Yeah, so it, it is primarily a house that they've put a bunch of recording gear in, but it does sound good and it is pretty high functioning for a house, you know? But it's like, it's a house out on, on a, like you, you look out the window in the live room and you're looking at the ocean, you know, like from a cliff basically. Um, is that actually, like, that is Larry's house? No, not Larry. Uh, uh, it's John uh, Bacigalupi. He's the he's so yeah. Larry's the editor, and Larry, but Larry's up in like uh, Portland, Oregon. John is the is the publisher, and I think the two of them have been the main two guys for quite some time now. But yeah, so and they have the same console that I have, which made that really uh, convenient, and um, and they have a whole slew of outboard equipment. And yeah, and a lot of instruments and stuff. They have a crazy like echo chamber that was like that was I think supposed to be like a bomb shelter or something like that. Like wh- however, the, whenever the house was built, that never got finished. So what it is is like a hundred foot long tunnel in the ground that just capped on one end, and they put some mics in it. Like that was cool. That definitely got used on that record. Um, and so, but that was great. That band is incredible. They're like beautiful people that was a really fun experience that's it was also the first time i ever did a record where i was just an engineer and like um like i didn't mix or master i didn't produce anything jeff was there to produce i was there to engineer capture and make everything just work you know um but three three weeks of tracking is long as longest i've ever worked on a record um yeah Um, it was fun so how much input are are you usually having um it just it's very different like record to record you know you can tell when people want input and when they don't. And some people don't require any input, whether they want it or not, you know? So, like, uh, I don't know. It really it really depends. But if somebody's struggling with something and, and they're kind of looking for guidance, I'm always happy to do it. I've, I've been writing songs since I was 15 years old, you know? Like, I, I understand the process, you know what I mean? Like, I can play music, yes. Yeah, so I, I can sing, kind of. So, like, I understand, like, pitch and melody and structure and stuff like that. So it's... Um, it's definitely a skill as as important as technical skills that you need, um, because sure. you know learning how to read a room and read people and find out who's the leader and find out what they want. And oh man, yeah. There's been times where like 
I try to be as diplomatic as possible, you know, like somebody will come in, we're setting up drums, I talk to the drummer and I'm like, hey, what do you want your drums to sound like, you know, and, the, and, and half the time they're surprised I'm even asking them the question, but I've, I've done that on records before and have people be like, oh, wow, that's so cool, but then I've done it other times and like found out in the mixing that only one person in the band is in charge of anything. And that, like, nobody else has any active input, but, like, but it's like, well, shit, like, you know, the drummer said he wanted his drums to sound warm and lush and almost dark, so I used this microphone, and now you're telling me that it's supposed to be really crisp and bright, (laughs) you know, like, but we're mixing now, Um, so, yeah, it is a tough thing to to read that room and figure out who's, who who to talk to, Um, usually I just ask. Um, What's going on with Everybody Rose, that's still a band? No, Everybody Row stopped a couple of years ago. It was, um, I think Everybody Row was kind of a rebound from being in Comadre for almost 10 years. Like a rebound in a way, like a rebound relationship, like when you've like been with someone for 10 years and then you start, start dating someone else and, and it's like, it can't, it can't really be that serious because you haven't gotten over the previous person yet. Yeah. Um, it was like that. So it didn't last very long and we didn't really do all that much. But I, I just actually started playing with that band Dangers from L.A., Yep. Uh, my first shows were just this weekend. Um, were they defunct for a bit and recently reformed, or have they just been quiet? They've just been quiet. They've, they've been working on a record for like a year. And their um, guitar player of fairly long standing, who's uh, a good friend of all of ours, just stopped. He you know, didn't want to be in the band anymore because he, he's he's in uh, Graf Orlock and Ghost Limb, and he runs a label, and he just got married, and he's kind of just trying to concentrate on those all those things. And so uh, I just took his spot because it was a really good fit. You know, they're good old friends, and I'm a fan of their band, and I hadn't played guitar in like a year, and, uh, <laughs> you know, in any serious manner anyway. And so I had to kind of like relearn a bit and learn a bunch of songs that are like not in my wheelhouse, but it's fun as hell. I never actually asked you, like, what was the demise of the Comadre? Was it like a healthy kind of ending? Or? Um, I don't know. I guess it depends on who you ask. But the, the shortest version is this, that one day our singer just quit. (laughs) That is the shortest version. So, but, but, um, right when we put that last record out, it came out like January of, I think 2013. And we had a full European tour booked and a full U S tour in the works. And Juan said, Hey, I can't be in the band anymore because he wanted to get more serious about building a family and getting married and having children and whatnot. Um, and a lot of us were thinking like, well, can't you do both? You know, we're not, we weren't that full time. You know what I mean? So it was a little weird, to be honest. Uh, and we had to cancel a full European tour with Dangers, actually. And uh, I ended up going anyway. I went and drove the tour. And because uh, I was like, well, fuck, I'm, I'm still going to Europe. Um, because we, we were also going to a bunch of places that Comadre had never been. That was part, it was, it was going to be like our fourth time to Europe. So it was like, oh, well, we need to, let's branch out, you know? Yeah. And we had also had 300 LPs that were shipped to Germany that needed to get either brought home or sold. So That takes its toll. I mean, the level of touring Comadre did. Yeah, especially, um, it, we went pretty hard for a couple of years where it was like three months out of the year or something like that. But the very last tour we did was the... Japan, Malaysia, Australia tour, yeah. where we met. Yeah. Um, I think that took that took its toll more than anything else. It was a five week long tour, where we did like ten days in each place or something like that. I remember the bassist name. We got had a kidney stone in Sydney. That sounded pretty. Oh, it was like a, it was a the drummer uh, Wes. Yeah, he had a kidney stone, and and that was at the end of the whole thing. Also, it was weird. Like we had been pretty spoiled as a band because we had only been places 
in years up until then where people already knew us and were like fans of the band. And so even on that trip, it was our third time to Japan and it, it went really well. Um, and then Malaysia was like full of rabid, like screamo kids. And so like, we'd never been there, but they were fucking pumped. And then we went to Australia. Malaysia's amazing for the kind of music. Oh my God. Yeah. Um, we did go home and make, like, we, we did that record and like, I'm very proud of that record. I'm, I'm happy that it got made. Um, that's why I was confusing. Thank you. Yeah, it was crazy. Uh, making that, that was a fun record to make. There was, it was a, it was a really convoluted process and I don't know, it was fun. And I still, I, I just, actually just put the reels on the other day cause I wanted to listen to the, the raw, all the raw stuff again. And I'm, I'm still stoked about how that record sounds. Well, I better let you go. Uh, so you can get back to work. I'm sure you've got a lot going on, and um, I better start my day too. It's actually morning. it's like yeah. early morning, right? Yeah, sure. A bit inarticulate. <laughs> hey, dude, I I think you did great. I I appreciate you reaching out, man. That's cool. Yeah, it's cool. I, yeah, I appreciate you taking time out of your schedule to do this thing. Um, Absolutely. I'm sure it'll be helpful for many people that are you know interested in living a life like the one that you're living. So. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I can't imagine another life at this point, honestly. Yeah, it's it's, it's hard to. <laughs> All right. I'll leave you to it. Cool, man. Take care. It's good to talk to you. You do, man. Bye. So there we are. Really thankful Jack was able to come on and talk about his life in music so far. Uh, It's really amazing people like him are able to stop their day and get on the phone for an hour with someone across the world to talk about audio. Uh, Really, really appreciative of that. And I hope it's been helpful to all the engineers that listen to this. Apologies about the audio. It's pretty ironic these issues we're having i think from now on we'll be ditching the host we were using and just trying out skype um we'll do some tests to see if there are less issues uh all right thanks so much for listening and supporting the podcast and this facility cheerio